Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, Regenerates, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Amanda Joy Ravenhill of the Buckminster Fuller Institute, co-founder of Project Drawdown with Paul Hawken, and um, all-around amazing woman, um, regenerative leader of the regeneration movement, um, burner, systems thinker, uh, speaker, um, yeah, and so always inspiring to connect with Amanda, um, who's been a longtime collaborator. And uh, in this episode, we we talk a lot about um, paradigm shift and what it looks like and feels like to be operating from the paradigm that can actually engender the the reconnection of humans with their role as a beneficial species, the evidence of humans as a beneficial species and ecosystems, the, um, the hope of basically being able to keep uh, global warming under 1.5 degrees and, and reverse it and, and cool, cool and draw carbon back down into living systems that uh, draw down and, and draw down 2.0's recent research shows is possible. Um, and yeah, the $74 trillion opportunity that, uh, drawdown and planetary regeneration represents, uh, between now and 2050. Um, and a lot of other amazing elements to this conversation. Amanda's super heartfelt and, um, always poetic in her approach to remembering that the problem is the solution and sort of, um, pulling out the silver lining, um, while maintaining a pulse on the imperative of the moment and the, the crisis that we're in. So I really appreciate Amanda for being on and look forward to having her on again soon. I hope, I hope you enjoy this episode and, uh, please, leave me uh, comments or notes and um, feel free to uh, share if you have any voices that you really feel like uh, should show up on the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Another little bit of housekeeping for those of you um, out there. Sorry, uh, the episodes have been a little irregular. Um, I was just out um, my um, annual pilgrimage to New Mexico and um, and things have been busy here at Region Network. I'm going to try to keep on a, a rhythm of two episodes a month for the time being um, so that I can kind of build up a backlog of, of great, powerful episodes. I, I'm trying not to just, you know, get into a production mode. I really want every episode to be meaningful and, uh, and deep. Um, so, um, I hope that's all okay with everyone out there in podcast land. I know, uh, when I start listening to a podcast, I'm always hungry for, for new episodes. So, uh, bear with me. I'm going for, uh, quality over quantity. I guess the last little bit of housekeeping, I did mention this in, in a couple of introductions, but it's worth mentioning again. I'm always focused on the quality of the content over the quality of the production. I am going to slowly start uh, improving my game with uh, notes um, and transcripts and links 
and hopefully improve audio quality over time. But for the time being, I really am focused on the quality of the guest and the quality of the conversation. I hope you all understand that choice. Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing you all out on the interwebs. Have a, a beautiful week and um, happy regenerating. All right. Welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, Amanda. I'm here with Amanda Ravenhill. I'm so excited to get to talk. We don't get to hang out as much as I'd like, but I always value the time that we get to spend together. So I'm super grateful for you hopping on and taking the deep dive. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. So there's so many different things that I'm excited to talk to you about. Um, I was just throwing a few of them out, but I kind of love to start with just, you know, maybe sharing a little bit with myself and listeners about what gives you the most hope right now. What are you tuning into that when you tune into it, you just sort of feel your heart swell up and you're like, yes, like it's all happening in a beautiful way and there's hope. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's this notion that Janine Benyus offered to me. She's the author of Biomimicry, of course. And um, she was the board chair at Project Drawdown uh, in our early years. And she spoke to how humans can become and have been a beneficial species. Mm -hmm. And that shift from this kind of global identity that we have of being a cancer and, and needing to be smaller and like live simply so that others may simply live and kind of this just scarcity mentality that's one got us in the first here in the first place and then two yeah. permeated the environmental movement to the point that we haven't gotten anywhere uh, that sh that shifting over to we can be a beneficial species and the humans planted the amazon and look at all of this amazing amazing work that we're doing all over the world in order to create healthy ecosystems and vibrant communities and, you know, better livelihood for those who have been historically oppressed and marginalized. There's just so much good news about us doing a good job. Um, mm. And I feel like I have a, a, a really unique and fortunate kind of crow's nest on Spaceship Earth. You know, I'm like on top of this certain part of the ship where I'm able to see so many of these efforts uh, and so many people having great success. And I've shifted that identity that I know that I can be a beneficial kind of keystone species uh, and that we all can. And that, yeah, just brings me to life. Literally brings me to life. <laughs> I love that. And I so resonate with the sort of humans as a keystone species um, as kind of like the guy, the North star for, you know, our era this moment in time? What does that mean? How do we do that? Um, well, so, I mean, there was a lot there. I mean, maybe some of our listeners are, you know, maybe some, maybe some listeners are be, betwixt and between different paradigms. You know, I myself, from day to day, sometimes I find myself kind of like pretty firmly rooted in the, you know, humans as a regenerative keystone beneficial species and, and sort of seeing myself and my family and my community and, and other humans through that lens. And sometimes <clears throat> I notice that I collapse back down into the sort of, you know, um, yeah, as you described it, scarcity mindset where, you know, there's sort of like a more defensive bent. Um, 
So I'm just curious what, maybe describing how, well, I mean, let's do this in a couple of layers. Like first, what is the evidence, like the empirical evidence that you ground, not that that's the only way of knowing, but what is the empirical evidence that you lean into that like reinforces the story of humans as a beneficial species? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of it comes from getting to know stories about uh, traditional ecological knowledge or you know, indigenous ways of understanding and managing life and ecosystems. So one that I mentioned earlier was humans planted the Amazon. Um, of course, trees propagate themselves, um, but there's a lot of evidence to show that the soil was built by and many of the trees were planted by humans uh, in this kind of uh, symbiotic, mutualistic um, dynamic. And that, um, you know, Charles Mann wrote the book uh, 1491, which was huge for kind of getting the biochar movement started of like looking at this soil of the Amazon, this terra preta, this dark soil, dark earth uh, that included a lot of biochar that, you know, we don't know how many Native Americans there were before, um, for, before, you know, the, the genocide. Um, but we know that there is evidence that humans were kind of a central part of that. So that was kind of, you know, uh, centuries ago. Now looking at today, 80% of the biodiversity in the world is managed by 5% of the people who are indigenous. So they are doing it. It's happening. It's all around us. Um, they're under-resourced, which is partially what we're doing at Buckminster Fuller Institute is resourcing them and learning from them in the process. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also if you look at the Americas and look at like the, um, you know, the history of the bison, um, and there was 60 million, it was the largest herd in the world, 60 million bison that were very much lived in this, again, reciprocal relationship with the indigenous people to the point where we had 50 feet of healthy soil 50 feet of it so yeah a lot of it comes back to kind of indigenous um historical knowledge but also looking at what's happening now Mm -hmm. yeah awesome i know i'm one of the more inspiring recent works that i read was i think it's called cultural forests of the amazon which Mm -hmm. is a which was the sort of pillar um ethnobotanical work that that was correlating long-term inhabitation of the sort of refugia refugia zones with the hot hot, uh, biodiversity hotspots in the amazon Mm -hmm. and then and then you know which is sort of separate but connected to the terra preta story Mm -hmm. super exciting to think about and just have that image of humans in non-extractive relationship with the greater than human world. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, that's, that is, I so resonate with that as like the most hopeful image and um, cool. Well, so now the next phase of that question, like, so first I was asking you, what's maybe some of the empirical underpinnings of, of your hope, right? And, and so 
leaning strongly on emerging science and history and present day management outcomes of indigenous people sounds like it's kind of top of the list. Um, what are, at least in my experience, paradigm shift and sort of maintenance of paradigm or like how we're approaching epistemologically, ontologically our world and like our worldview, our cosmovision isn't simply a rational uh, um, mental exercise. It's sort of full body, somatic, who are you hanging out with? Um, how are you, what practices do you connect with in order to shift your being state? You know, so maybe if you wouldn't mind describing just like, how do you experience yourself the shift between, you know, the old paradigm you were inhabiting and the new paradigm. Do you experience that sh back, like a back and forth on what rhythm and what, what do you do or what do you notice supports you um, living from the paradigm that you would choose? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I think, this idea of we are the regeneration is this idea that uh, many of us kind of came up with independently in the last 10 years, which is beautiful. It's like a, it's proof that it is, it is happening, I think. But it's this idea that everyone who's alive today has this opportunity of being part of this omni-generation, everyone who's alive, um, that gets to kind of do this transition of an old school and it's really only temporary or old school, right? It's like this 500 year dream that we've been in or nightmare maybe, that we've been in of scarcity and myopic, you know, short-term thinking uh, and selfishness and everything into kind of this remembering what it means, re-enchanting with the world. Um, so I think of everyone alive as, as kind of part of this transition. And it's tough because it's, we're so ingrained in linear thinking and kind of like these, um, these root causes of you know a lot of it's based on scarcity and kind of enoughness and um competition um mm. and it's it's tough because it's so ingrained in us we don't even know how often we're using it we're using the language of reductionism um and yeah i try to just on a personal level just notice um how often i can reframe you know, and so what does it feel like what like for you, if you notice, like if you could hold an image in your mind of a moment, maybe recently that you like were felt yourself collapsed into the sort of scarcity mindset versus a moment where you were really clearly sort of like embodying the beneficial story. What do you notice if a, a different sensory experience in your body and, you know, mm -hmm. like the quality of your thoughts? Mm hmm. Yeah, there's like an opening. It just happened this morning. So we, we were working on this project called Regenerosity, which is about uh, increasing the velocity of capital to regenerative projects all over the world while also learning from them, breaking the power dynamic. And instead of going out and thinking about one, shifting it from we have a pipeline of projects to we have a watershed of projects. So that kind of shift. And then two, thinking about going out and funding and getting and fundraising versus going out and healing 
wealth holders. Yeah. Like that shift of kind of like, oh, like I need and they have to, we all are in this together to heal and to evolve. Um, yeah, it just felt like kind of like an opening and uh, yeah, I guess a shift away from fear. Um, it's interesting that relanguaging element. I remember I watched a presentation by Sally Calhoun, um, who for listeners who aren't familiar with her, she is a uh, billionaire and really active funder in the regenerative agriculture movement and has started this initiative called the No Regrets Initiative, which is sort of all about investing you know, like her foundation is mandated to bur to burn down. Like they're they're there to to reinvest the capital right in into the roots of a new system. And and I remember listening to her talk about her team drawing inspiration from living systems and starting to relanguage this sort of like battlefield business language of you know, um, pipelines and target markets and all of this stuff mm -hmm. to, you know, sort of like watershed and, and soil ecosystem, kind of microbial regeneration and mm -hmm. like the inspiration that, and, and the shift that was. And I sort of heard the echo of that in, in your answer, which is, you know, you can tell by the language you're using. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, there's a couple of points there. One is, you know, how do you build a bridge? Like, like, how do you use language that is representative of a, of a wholeness of being and thinking and approach without alienating and bifurcating from people who are using a different language? Um, and so that's something that's like a constant struggle. You know, how do you not just become an in, in crowd that's, you know, sort of like using jargon and you know, getting out into the into woo woo land, mm -hmm. sort of maintain rigor and, you know, um, so that's one question I have, which yeah. is, you know, how do you experience that in relating to because I, you're a bridge builder, and so you're you're building bridges between, um, you know, funders and doers and you know pioneers and and those who want to support pioneers and pioneers in one another and sort of, you know. Um, how do you experience the, the sort of question of creating common language mm -hmm. and, and when to use the watershed metaphor and when to just hold it in your mind or right. something? Right. Yeah, I think one kind of key to unlock that is humor. Um, Buckminster Fuller talked about how like humor exists at the like the edge effect uh, at the like place between systems. Um, it's like when you kind of can uh, be in two different worlds. And I think you know this this time that we're in is what I call the awkward era of like the good news is getting better and the bad news is getting worse and there's just like a lot of awkward times right now, and so to like lean into that as uh, an element of humor and an element of being able to kind of you know humor can also like go straight to the truth in a way right. Mm -hmm. um, 
things are often funny when you find them to be true and you hadn't really realized they were true. Um, so I think that's one kind of key to unlocking that, that bridge um, between worlds. And um, yeah, it's something I'm like taking a lot of clowning classes and learning about this year because I think it's, it's something I want to, I already innately love uh, humor and, and all of that, but I want to get even better at it so that we can use it as a tool. So yeah. wait, you're taking clowning classes? Classes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and reading books about tricksters and just, I think there's an edge there. Buckminster Fuller himself was definitely a trickster. I mean, he was basically a performance artist, um, you know, disguised as this like architect accountant guy. He wore an accountant's uh, outfit as a costume so that people would take him more seriously. Um, yeah. So yeah, and he's my muse, so, you know. I look to him for inspiration in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I've been thinking about that sort of trickster coyote archetype a lot recently and just as it relates to leadership and seeing certain things happen in our sort of proximate environment, um, you know, um, seeing leaders Either either fail or or the people followers have the perception that the leader's failing, and how whether or not it's intentional, those moments are what create community strength. You know, like if a if a leader ceases to be the one that everybody can count on, um, people have to grow up and like take leadership and connect with their own intrinsic motivation about why they were there in the first place. So there's this sort of like, I've just been wondering, I've been starting to think, you know, in myself and, and in myself, there's been different moments in my life when I've intention, I've set intentions to sort of be a leader who, fa who fails or who, who like steps back so that other people step forward. But then in the middle of it, I forget that that was my intention. And then I get it. And then I, and then when I'm in the middle of even sort of a planned failure, it gets really like heartbreaking or challenging or shameful for me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, you know. So anyway, I've just been really thinking about that. You're like, what is the archetype? I mean, or what are the archetypes of leaders for the regeneration? What are the ways in which, you know, there's a polycentric or plurality of leaders and, and, and then how do we show up in that? And um, how is that different from old archetypes of leaders in your mind? Yeah, it's something I think about a lot and um, I'm still really open to new ideas. That's not something I've found a lot of insight around quite yet, but and one thing that comes to mind that kind of weaves a, a couple of those threads together is this idea of a gestalt switch. This thing that Buckminster Fuller used to do so well is like, oh, you thought things were this way? They're actually like, you know, totally flipped around. Um, and I think that's kind of the trickster archetype. Um, but also, you know, kind of like a good leader of just like, let's just show you a different way of seeing and then allowing you to kind of walk into that new way. So one of the ones that I'm, you know, a big fan of is, is loving carbon, you know, like carbon at the, you know, elemental level holds hands and collaborates, you know, it's like this, like basis of all life, uh, well, 
almost all of life on earth. And um, yeah, I think just showing people, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about it like that as a leader and then letting people kind of go within that, like kind of leader as, as like insight or um, yeah, I keep on coming back to like trickster or jester or just like seeing, seeing things from a fresh perspective but then not being like, and this is exactly how it's going to be from there. And this is, you know, kind of more um, prescriptive of exactly what it needs to be. It's more just like an opening and awakening as leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Just thinking, you know, the old paradigm, like style of leadership that I'm aware of, or that sort of that I feel innately or, you know, it's, you know, there's sort of like this, strength and capacity you know there's like you have to be highly capable as a leader to maintain respect and you need to sort of like not be wrong and if and if you are wrong it leads to this sort of questioning of your authority and your capability and let's find somebody else who's more capable dynamic and then people sort of you know you see this in even in bureaucratic structures where authority Currently, there's this rapid undermining of authority where people no longer trust the, the old pillars of society to be telling the truth, whether or not, whether or not they're like actively lying or, or they just can't keep up or, or there's sort of like a campaign to undermine them for other reasons or all of the above. <laughs> there's just sort of like disillusion of authority it feels like in society more broadly you know like people just don't trust anymore in the places where you used to source trust from and what i was hearing you talk about was you know the inspiration you drew from draw from bucky fuller in his style of leadership which is more about asking a paradigm shifting question, a gestalt shifting question, and then allowing people to make their own meaning and their own choices and connect with their own intrinsic wisdom and less about providing like a 40 point plan for how to get from A to B. And uh, I just, I really resonate with that. And I think it's interesting because that's such a non that's it's such a um, messy style of leadership because neither the leader nor the led in quotes, or maybe neither the provocateur nor the provoked, or you know, however the positions are, um, know what will actually happen. So there's mystery and magic. There's emergence. There's the potential to meet the present moment. But on the other hand, there's you know, the, the potential for things to go terrifyingly in some direction that you never knew or something like that. So it's interesting that the magic and, and the release and the terror, sort of like the psychological balance of that exercise of, of leadership in the present moment. It's like release is the name of the game, kind mm -hmm. of. Yeah. How do you how do you how do you manage planning in an organization? Like how do, how does BFI do like long-term planning 
in a way that is infused with this understanding that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we do kind of like, you know, three-year strategic plans, kind of pretty traditional nonprofit style. Um, but then we're also actually doing a global plan inspired by Bucky's work. So he was, yes, that kind of question-asking leader of, you know, his quote, one of his quotes is, um, you know, I realized the answer, this is a paraphrase, I realized the answer to the problem by like eliminating what wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. and, and like really like seeking, always seeking um, truth and, and more depth. Um, so there's that side of it. But then he also had the world design science decade and this like world's inventory of, of world resources, human trends and needs and like all of this like very detailed um, not quite blueprint, but like almost towards that plan of how to retool the world to work for 100% of humanity. And now we are updating that for this next decade. We just kind of rekindled the design science decade for the 20s. Um, and now we have five two-year phases um, that are really kind of like milestones and, and ideas of what needs to happen in what order, depending on... Um, you know, kind of an order of operations or dependencies of certain things. And so it's based on this kind of newer understanding and, you know, post-scarcity econ uh, economics and that sort of thing, but it also has some, some specific things in there. So it's kind of a balance of the two. And just to briefly say, because we're just writing this right now, this is the first time I'm talking about it publicly, the five phases are reconciliation, restoration, resilience, regeneration and rejoicing and those are each five two-year phases that obviously all interact with one another they aren't discrete um, but Beautiful. we are we're painting it all out because of you know this idea of like if you put things out there if you paint a picture for the future that is possible then people can start to weave in their threads into it um, so instead of every single detail being put out there we're enabling this um, availability cascade uh, which is this cognitive bias of like that, which you have available is kind of like a shared vision that becomes a shared reality. It like cascades into being. Um, so we're releasing that in the next couple months and throughout uh, the year and a bunch of different events. Um, yeah. Say more about that. Combination of those two. Say more about that availability bias. Mm -hmm. What, what yeah. do you mean by that? So the availability cascade is this is this cognitive bias. There's also the availability heuristic. Um, they both inspired uh, our work with Project Drawdown, um, which I founded with Paul Hawkins six years ago now, um, because no one was talking about how to solve climate change. Or if they were, it was just climate and energy as one word and not talking about the soil part of it and the girls' education and family planning and materials and all the other pieces that go into it. Um, anyway, so the availability cascade is this idea that like if we have these examples available to us of like what the future could possibly be, then we're more likely to kind of work, take actions towards making those possible. So an example would be, you know, if you have um, four people in your family with PhDs, you can kind of see that's like an available example to you. You can kind of see what steps they took in order to get those um, to get those degrees. There's also all sorts of layers of privilege and uh, different elements there, of course. But there's an element of you knowing that a PhD is possible because you have seen other people kind of walk towards that and you've seen that it's possible in your realm. 
Um, so that can happen with a future that you know, if we look at and see that other people are claiming, we can reduce average global temperatures in 30 years. Mm -hmm. Not everyone knows that. That's not being told out there. But once it is, we're like, oh, wait, how does that happen? Oh, so these things need to happen. We need to have this mass transfer of a trillion tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere and into life through our soil and our trees and a little bit. You know, I oftentimes think that the, the biggest blessing in the next decade is that trillion tons of excess carbon in the atmosphere because mm -hmm. otherwise all of the carbon that we just flushed into the ocean from soil erosion we wouldn't have any way to put it back right right <laughs> and we get to bring it back in the oceans through bringing our whales back through bringing our coastal ecosystems back our mangroves our salt marshes it's funny how you know, like the old bill mollison you know principle and quote of the problem is the solution right? The CO2 in our atmosphere is the opportunity to turn into life. Like that, that is the, the name of the game right now is turn all of that, you know, uh, atmospheric carbon that was once life and fossilized and turned into petroleum. And then we used it to turn to, to create a global civilization, a globe spanning, you know, force of geology, Mm -hmm. That is humanity right now. Um, now we have the opportunity to, to turn the entire global economic apparatus into a life building mm -hmm. apparatus mm -hmm. with this quality of life and this uh, access to information and all of these things that that afforded us this sort of like brief blip in our, you know, in the, the, the Holocene uh, moment in which climate was perfect and you know, we developed all of these. It's like it's all it's miracle after miracle after miracle sort of crystallizing into this miracle in which our biggest problem mm -hmm. is a resource that mm -hmm. we can reinvest into life itself. It's mm. kind of bl blows my mind. And right. the fact that that isn't the story that everybody is telling is right. equally mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of using like old and new language at the same time, like we can mine the sky, exactly the old school, right, language to create yeah. an abundant earth, you know, and, and restock life. You know, it's like we were a big grocery store. We need to like restock the aisles with all of <laughs> the insects and everything. Yeah. And, and we get to do so with all this technology. Buckminster Fuller said we built all the right, we will build all the right tools for the wrong reasons first. Right. And so I'm obsessed with looking at these, like I have this whole tattoo on my shoulder. That's all about this. of like, we're this chick Buckminster Fuller says, of, of, um, you know, hatching from our eggshell and that we've, we've so much more capable than we know. We've built all these right tools for the wrong reasons. And we're going through this state change where we're realizing what to do with our feathers and our wings and our claws. And, you know, like a bird, it's been in this me, me, me land. And now we're like expanding out into the regenerative um, existence and like we're using all the processing power that we built for war. We're now understanding climate and ecosystems, you know, drones that we used for surveillance are now planting a polyculture of trees and inoculating the soil with microbes. Um, we're using, you know, space travel, which started out as like looking beyond the earth. It's now like looking back and telling us how the earth functions. Um, you know, GPS, there's just all of these tools that mostly were built for war and weaponry and in a scarcity mindset that is now 
helping us go through this, this transition to a, a thrivable world. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I totally resonate with that. I mean, it, it, part of the most amazing thing I think in this, this era is that retooling of geospatial earth observation capacity from you know, what once was just sort of the purview of the government and spy satellites, which is still scary to think about, like the capacity, the amount of things that are open source now and like what the, the capacity must be. <laughs> it kind of is mind blowing to me, you know, like because there is still surveillance capacity of, of enormous potential. And at the same time, on the positive side of that, like we have a, Every five days, there's a global data set of the entire surface of the planet at 10 meter resolution that is publicly freely available to everyone. Amazing. Yeah. And then with planet every day at three meters, not as publicly yeah, available. Yeah, they, <laughs> they just charge and mostly sell it to the, uh, you know, NSA, not to throw you under the bus planet, but really. It's a step in a larger process of having an uh, Earth Observation Control Center. But um, yeah, I mean, but it is all scary. It's like a frightening moment, you know, as a chick is hatching from its egg. It's like a, you know, fly or die moment. Um, but I think another thing that's being shifted is like granting personhood to corporations is now being used as granting personhood to natural systems with the right watersheds and rivers. That's one of the, in, in the context of region network and this sort mm -hmm. of like DAOs and discos and sort of, uh, distributed organizations. I'm so excited to, you know, have sort of a, a, a you know, um, durable digital representation and governance of living systems as sort of like entities as beings nested together and you know creating um that reciprocity i think it's it's definitely one of the more sort of compelling and exciting um opportunities that yeah, I mean, like cryptography, again, a, a, an orphan of war that we're adopting, right? Cryptography was, <laughs> was, was generated to encrypt signals so that you could plan and coordinate across distances in order to attack one another. And um, it fully military application. And now, you know, cryptographic network technology sort of underpins this whole sort of peer-to-peer -peer information technology revolution taking place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's just one thing after another, a giant convergence of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And overall, it's like, you know, it's one way to think about it is we're, we're moving towards a generous economy, right? So we have like the sharing economy elements of that, caring economy, people focusing more on like caring for one another and bringing that health into the economy. And then like this access to information in a way that's rooted in rights of nature um, can really enable us to be kind of generosity is what ensues when you're not in scarcity, right? It's like, if I know that my, you know, my win is a win for all, then I'm going to be in this much more generous mode. And we're seeing, yeah, this convergence happening across, you know, from, 
from crypto to rights of nature to, you know, just how we're treating information, open science, open source, all of these kind of open movements that are happening. Yeah. So what's, what are you tracking in the rights of nature movement right now um, that has you excited? Is there anything, you know, I, I've noticed it's been a hot topic at, in several of sort of the intersect social intersections that you and I um, share. I haven't necessarily been privy to anything new taking place per se sort of just like a new group of people getting excited about it. But, but I may be wrong about that. Like, is there something that's moving there that feels like a sort of more solid, you know, iteration and, and prototyping of what rights of nature means uh, beyond what happened, you know, five, six, maybe 10, ten years ago. I guess it was 10 years, 10, 10 years plus ago that, you know, Bolivia and Ecuador um, sort of did some constitutional work there and, you know, sort of there's been some other legal work, but is <laughs> what's happening? What has yeah. you created there? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there's just a constant stream of, of winds of, you know, nature, whether that's a watershed or a river or um, else is being granted personhood, you know, so using this thing that is... In courts, so there's like people passing, like people <laughs> are... are through ju judicial processes, uh, winning personhood mm -hmm. for league for sort of nature, essentially. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm constantly looking for like what is the flip of the root causes of the problems that got us here, right? Like, I, one of my definitions of regeneration is like solving problems while dissolving the root causes, right? Mm -hmm. It's like looking at the whole health of the whole system, and so one of the root causes is definitely granting personhood to corporations and money in politics like that has just effed so much. And so granting personhood to nature is kind of like the flip, the root healing or whatever would be of that root cause, you know, using the same tool for, for um, healing reasons. So that's part of it is just kind of the trickle of, of personhood being granted to these natural systems. And then the other part is this group called jump scale. You may be, familiar with in New York, um, who's put together a three-year comprehensive plan of how to move the entire global economy over to a rights of nature economy. And they're working with a lot of indigenous people, um, mostly across the Americas, but I think opening from there um, in order to, yeah, do it right. And they're really spending this first year kind of exploring what um, their indigenous partners kind of do with their life plans for their bioregions and, um, yeah, I'm really excited about that project and uh, yeah, look forward to them, to them growing. There's also somewhat on the side, but I think interwoven with that of the decolonizing wealth movement of a lot more people kind of showing what's going on with philanthropy of 94% you know, of philanthropy goes to white led organizations. Um, and there just seems to be first an awareness and now actually capital moving over to uh, indigenous and people of color, uh, um, queer and other like historically oppressed populations being able to lead these organizations. And I think with that comes, you know, there's so much intersectionality and like awareness of one another's, um, you know, things that we've overcome and resilience there uh, that I think it's just gonna, it, it'll have kind of a, this, um, you know, complexity, 
gosh, I'm lost in my own thought, but the, <laughs> there'll be like this cascade of there's so many interdependencies of kind of how um, the world will, can, will like thrive. I have this vision. Okay, here's, here's a visual vision. Yeah, lay it out. There's, there's this vision of like, we've been working on regeneration. Obviously there's like the millennia long regeneration, but like within the last couple decades, a lot of us have been working on it. And there's kind of like a lag effect. And I feel like a lot of the work to, whether it's, you know, restoring salmon populations or using crypto to imagine new economies or, you know, making land more fertile, banning pesticides, all of these things. I feel like in the design science decade, we've, we say it's going to happen in 2026, but there'll be this like wave of regeneration kind of like all, all those pieces will start to kind of find one another and build this web of, um, yeah, just global healing and wealth and truth and um, thriving where they'll all kind of like begin to build off of one another in this really beautiful way. Yeah. So may it be. So it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a beautiful vision. I'm sort of reminded of, um, there's this, I mean, this is sort of a random, random aside. I don't remember which, um, gosh, which Kim Stanley Robinson book is it? It's, uh, shoot. Well, anyway, one of, One of Kim Stanley, are you familiar with Kim Stanley Robinson? Only a little bit. Oh, well, you should. I know of, but I haven't read. Oh, you should definitely read all of Kim Stanley Robinson's stuff. He's the most um, epic sort of anarchist science regeneration sci-fi writer you know it's it's all all of his books are really amazing but there's what there's particularly there's oftentimes there's, there's these scenes and characters of people sort of doing kind of like ecopoesis sort of gaia poesis sort of the economy of creation and in in one of his books it just resonated with what you're talking about there's like there's this essentially like worker-owned co-op whose job is in post climate change sort of like post sea level rise, earth, they get contracted to rebuild beaches. <laughs> so they go and they like live there and they like regenerate and restore all of these coastal ecosystems and create, they're recreating beaches because when the sea level rises, you no longer have for however many hundreds or thousands of years, you've had the cycle of um, the ocean's wave action creating sand and you no longer have that as sea level rises. So like essentially, I mean, here's a little motivation. If people weren't already motivated to, you know, get your shit together and go take place, go take some global regeneration action. <laughs> the thought of losing our beaches. I mean, come on. Yeah. Ocean without a beach. Uh, so anyway, just like whole tribes of people, whole businesses, whole economies mm-hmm. sort of dedicated to these, essentially just life-giving um, activities. Like, hey, we just go around making beaches. That's our life, you know? It, and it's, it's just a juicy sort of like vision of, 
you know, the community is sort of, you know, they travel around, they're all like highly skilled sort of environmental engineers and they, and server bums <laughs> kind of, you know, it's like kind of just a cool uh, lifestyle. And I see that a lot. I mean, I see people starting to crystallize new, innovative, interesting livelihoods that are life affirming and life giving and, and combine, you know, high, high skill. I'm just, like my background is from the permaculture movement and there's been sort of successive waves of, of permaculture students and teachers. And I don't know what we're in now, like the seventh wave or something like that since the original sort of like itinerant sort of Bill Mollison spreading the permaculture gospel. We're like seven waves of sort of generations of teachers into this. And um, I mean, it's just so fascinating to see some trans, transfiguration happened in which the caliber and level and approach of people in permaculture is now such that you don't even know that they're doing permaculture and they're like working in bureaucracies or they're in high level engineering firms or they're working at Google or all of these different places and they're creating these little, you know, social ecological permacultures through their work. And I think that's happening, I, you know, I'm sure that's happening kind of in biomimicry world and it's happening in all of these places where all of a sudden people become artful enough that you cease even, it ceases even to be this sort of like, hmm, sort of outright movement and it just starts to be an intrinsic way of being. Somehow that feels like it's approaching mm -hmm. what it's going to feel like as we get, you know, as you were saying in 2026, when there's like such a critical mass of interconnectedness, mm -hmm. like the mycelial interconnectedness, that the fruiting bodies start just popping up everywhere. Yes. You know, there's like, um, yeah. it just ceases to be a thing. Mm -hmm. It's not the scene anymore. It's just, the way the economy works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 I see that um, totally. And I think it's also really important that we know that it's, um, there's trouble ahead too, you know, and that like, as, and there's a lag time for these things and to not lose hope. Um, I think apathy and, and like, you know, unhealthy cynicism is really dangerous right now. And so we need to make sure that as we're painting the picture of all of this happening, we also are grounded in the fact that like extreme weather and like some really tough struggles are ahead as well. And that we can't let that like, um, we can't let it wash out the fire, but really like fan the flames, right? So like, how can we, as Australia is burning, really lean into like indigenous cultural fires and, you know, um, ways of managing the land that can help us build resilience. Um, and yeah, I, I just think it's important. We, we paint the picture of the regeneration happening, but also know that like the, the fires, the floods, the eroding sea line, you know, coast, the, Hurricanes um, 
and all the like political and economic security that could happen from those things are a reason to like dig into one another and not like stash the cash and bunker mentality and and you know i'm gonna like hold my own while i can thinking but really like how do we you know like with all the fires in california um recently it's like do you does everyone go out and build a, uh, get a tesla power wall or does everyone get together and figure out what a microgrid is you know it's like those those the answers to those questions will determine our fate because if everyone goes and just goes into like bunker mentality and like and and stuck get stuck in like the fear and the scarcity which is hard when it's acute you know when you're feeling pain and when you've lost um it's so important that we, we be generous in that, in the face of that. Um, yeah. So like, as we have it outlined in the design science decade, it's like the first two phases, the first two years are really about reconciliation, like reconciling with what's happening, reconciling with our enemies. Um, those who we've seen have created this mess, reconciling with the root causes, doing a lot of healing so that, the next two year phase is all about restoration. It's just like mass tree planting, mass wealth transfer, like restoring our different systems. Uh, and then the next two year phase is resilience. Like as those extreme weather events are happening and insecurity, you know, continues to kind of press on us, like digging into one another. And then the regeneration happens in 2026. And then it's time to rejoice. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's how I see it. And I think the more we tell that story of like, it's, it's complex, you know, it's not just like, everything's going to be great. Um, it's then people can kind of like prepare for that. And if something happens to them, you know, they can respond in a way that's generous. I think it's so critical. So, Yeah, I mean, what's the what's the difference between what's the practical difference between getting a Tesla Powerwall and building a community microgrid? Because I don't, I don't, I guess I'm not sure that, that that's an either or. Um, I mean, sort of doesn't community don't community power grids rely on some amount of sort of um, distributed energy storage that it, it does sort of require some certain percentage of community members to participate in investing in kind of like the battery storage and productive capacity of, of the community mm -hmm. essentially. So yeah. what's the, what's the balance there as a practical case study, as a right. practical case study in, in sort of like, because I also think there's a balance, right, between generosity and community engagement and ensuring sort of like the, when the plane goes through and you got to put yours on first and then, you, and then you put on your neighbors. So like, what does that, what does that look like to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, just within the like, you know, power wall versus microgrid, it's like if you get to the power wall through having like microgrid or like community mentality, that's one thing. But if you first are like, well, I'm just gonna like take care of myself. Um, 
it's kind of like, yeah, what is the reasoning behind that? Are you taking care of yourself so that you can be prepared to take care of everyone else and like really being honest with yourself? Or is there kind of like an, a selfishness kind of bunker mentality, stash the cash, like protect my own um, unhealthy dynamic there? So it's like Buckminster Fuller said, in the end, only integrity will count, right? So like where are you really actually being in integrity with making sure that the larger ecosystem thrives? I mean, I'm... I'm so that's kind of one, the case study of it, of just like making sure that you're balancing the two, like what does it look like for the whole community to thrive so that I can thrive, but also I need to thrive in order to help the community. Um, there's two things that come up within that. Um, one is this idea of like, it's not that competition is bad. It's not that selfishness is bad. It's just that selfishness needs to be like, an island within an ocean of selflessness, you know, whereas I think it's often the other way around where we're like, you know, mostly taking care of ourselves. And then we have like kind of these islands of, of taking care of others. Um, so in terms of like the ratio of the two, mm -hmm. um, that's one part of it. And then also just looking at like the definition of life you know, like all of the nested holons of like a cell and a, you know, organism within a family, within a community, within a bioregion. Um, there's always like the definition of life is that like that combination of keeping yourself alive versus contributing to your environment so that your environment can keep you alive, you know, and that's like looking at ecology that's like something that we learned that's a principle across all all nested scales and so you always need to be zooming out what's that next proximate hole that you're keeping alive so that you can stay alive yeah well i guess that was going to be my that's exactly what was moving in my mind which is the ultimate act of selfishness is to care for your environment and right. your community. Right. So, you know, if there's a way to, I, I just wonder, like, there's probably a hundred different ways to, in different contexts, different cultures, um, different scenarios, to make the jump between that first instinct, which I think is, at least in my mind, it's better not to fight the instinct for self-preservation. It's like, like it's better to, to work to expand it as it's happening, if that makes sense. So like, if my first instinct and capability is, and like, I feel like all I've got time for, and I'm aware of all of this stuff, and I'm just like, fuck it, I'm getting five Tesla power walls. <laughs> I'm, I'm going for it. Um, what is the next step after that person has gone and done that, which is understandable in, in the context, although in, in isolation, I agree, it's sort of like for them and their community, not the best because they could be sort of like connected to a whole neighborhood and, you know, they could be benefiting from potlucks and, you know, joy and getting to meet, you know, kids and maybe being a godfather or godmother and who knows all of the different multi-capital rewards and the the safety net of having neighbors who care for you and are looking out for you when stuff happens and 
give you a call if they see something. All of those benefits, which are like hard to account for. But what's the sort of like instead of saying people have to start there with that as the desire, which they may or may not, I think it's good if they do, but what, how do we engage people who are starting from a more prepper mentality, who are just sort of like, I know I gotta, you know, I know I need to stock up on some food and some ammo and some power walls, cause I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna take care of myself. Do you have a sense of how to engage with those folks and invite them to see so, like the vibrant potential of, of having a tribe, of having a community, of being part of an intact village that takes care of itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of things come up. Uh, one is like my driver for all, for all of this is my place in Maine. Um, you know, I, I love spending my summers on this little island in Maine. That's where I've spent all my summers my whole life growing up around the world. As a child of anthropologists, it's like my home base, my Maine home. Um, and it's my home is 10 feet above sea level. Um, and so the best way I know to continue to have summers there for the rest of my life and connect with the forest that is me, um, it's really scary to think about, but the best way to do it is to like work on the biggest system I can because it's all dependent on itself, right? Like the, it's every nested hole is within this larger hole. And like, if you want to be able to like have lunch at a restaurant with your daughter in 30 years, like you need to be looking at the larger hole. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to live till 2091 when I'm 108 and I would love to be like in Maine that summer. Mm-hmm. And the best way I know how to do that is to like figure out how this whole thing is going to work, you know? And we, and I think part of it is that people don't know that it's possible. Like people think it's end times. So many people think it's end times. They don't understand that it's actually possible to transform in the next couple of years into a world where things don't have to be super, super critical collapse, you know? I think like when you ask most people, like, how do you really feel or how do you really, really feel? Or sometimes how do you really, really, really feel? Like three questions in, almost everyone I ask at that level thinks we're actually just, it's done. And so if we're all walking around abandoned by the future, then like, how are we supposed to be investing in one another? You know, like when you feel abandonment and we almost all of us have abandonment triggers in some way or another, whether it's handed down to us or, or something that we've had, you do not want to engage, you know? And so that most people I think are need to heal that and need to see that it's possible. Um, and for whatever reason, I am like the queen of silver linings. That's what my husband calls me. I'm like always looking for the positive and, um, <laughs> I can see, I can see it's possible, you know? And, and I just want everyone to be able to hold that in their heart too, so that I can spend my summers in Maine. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I resonate with that. That feels similar to a sort of like thought process I have. I mean, I oftentimes, how would I put this? I guess I have no patience for fatalism. Yeah, I think pessimism is the- If I get into the corner, if, if I get pushed into the corner and I get in, in my like, in my like, 
you know, whatever's closest for me to being a prepper, I'm like, throw those fuckers off the boat. <laughs> like, seriously, like, so I used to do mountaineering when I was a, a lot um, growing up and to college and whatnot. And, you know, if you're tied on a rope to someone else on the top of a mountain and say there's six people on a rope and one person starts flipping out and they're going to drag everybody else off the mountain, what do you do? And the same is true. I mean, you know, and so what are the attributes, sort of the psychological attributes of someone essentially being insane and essentially being like antisocial to the level of like an, an, an inability to, um, to maintain the health and integrity of the rest of the community. And, you know, you were talking earlier about sort of some of the hazards ahead and sort of preparing not just for like this beautiful vision, but also for the, the challenges that are ahead. And, you know, I don't mean to sort of like get into a punitive, you know, off with their heads and, you know, ecocide tribunal kind of conversation, but, <laughs> but th there is a real sort of like, how do we balance the, you know, how do you deal with, with behavior that threatens the existence of life on earth? Um, and in the broadest scale to how do you deal with behavior that threatens, you know, the individuals in a community through its just, you know, negative expression. How do we deal with those people? Do we like, make a seat at their table, at our table and, um, invite them in for lunch? You know, do you show up? at your door with a shotgun? Do you call the cops? I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, and who are the cops in this case, even? I'm just curious, like, yeah. what, what's the, what are your thoughts about that? What are the ethics of, you know, in this moment of sort of planetary crisis and opportunity, what are the ethics of kind of like holding together a healthy community and antisocial behavior? Yeah. I think, I mean, just using metaphors like that in a way that just awakens people to the fact that, like, pessimism is actually a luxury of those enough who are privileged to feel it, and it's only useful in a less urgent time. We have no more, no more time for pessimism. And being kind of, like, stern and, like, motherly around that, I think, is one angle that I haven't seen our movement do as well, you know? We kind of tend towards like the like soft and, and, you know, bringing people along. I think there's like a sternness that's important there of like, you're going to kill us with your pessimism. <laughs> like it is self-fulfilling. And like as many stories and metaphors we can tell around self-fulfilling prophecies, the availability cascade, if you want to get into cognitive biases or whatever it is, but coming along with like a lot of different language, I think is important. Um, the other thing that brings up is like narcissism is so rampant. It's not, it's like what we call leadership in a lot of ways. Um, and narcissists need to think that it's their idea in order for them to go with it. So how can we kind of like incept these ideas in so that, you know, 
I don't know if Bezos has narcissism, but I would suspect there's some element there. Um, you know, how can we make it so that as this he's giving this ten billion dollars, yeah, as he's giving this ten billion dollars away, sure, run with regeneration and like say it's your thing. I don't care. I don't need the ownership over it. I just need it to happen. Um, so there's like a telling the story of you know the climbing analogy you just gave, or you know we don't. Pessimism is a, is a luxury of a less urgent time. Any of these things in multiple languages and then incepting it so that people can think it's their idea. Um, having ownership over the movement, you know, is it's kind of old school, but at the same time, it's like Daniel Schmachtenberger talks about, like, we need to play the last win-lose game dynamic in order to win for all. Like, we need to use the old game um dynamics in order to like transfer over into the new one so it's like yeah those are the things that come up like inoculation you know like bringing in the the regenerative understanding in in a way where people can feel like it's it's theirs because they might need that in order to to run with it yeah no i think i mean there's a couple layers there one is i think daniel speaks to this pretty well. Um, I'm really grateful for what he's, it's like the lucidness that he's brought to the conversation around sort of the impossibility of continuing to play the win-lose game <laughs> and yet having to play it a last time and not lose while you're creating the new game. Right. Um, I think is poignant and right on. Um, and I think that that's just maybe actually referencing this sort of hypothetical, you know, what do you do with the hypothetical, what do you do with the person who's, you know, as you're in a life or death situation, like freaking out and complaining and making it all about them and not allowing the group to sort of like behave in an intelligent way. What do you do with that person? Um, you know, we have to, maybe maybe what I'm just picking up here is, is you can't, you can't lose to them. There's like this very narrow band. So you can't let that voice derail the, the, the ability of, of, of an agile, intelligent approach to whatever the hell is happening, right? You can't like occlude your, your sensory understanding and creativity with this sort of like pessimism and, you know, naysayingness. But you also probably can't just like cut the rope and pitch them off the side <laughs> because, because then you've created another win-lose cycle and, and then you lo actually end up losing. Right, right. Because we're not just climbing up on the mountain. Like that's the complexity of the game. Mm -hmm. the, the goal isn't just to get some people up to the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. The goal is to transform the whole metagame that is taking place. Mm -hmm. so, so there does have to be this like sort of narrow, sweet, sort of like ethical approach, or maybe it's even a moral appro approach that, you know, I don't know what that means, like in the metaphor. I don't mm -hmm. know what that means, you know. You, tranquilize them and throw them over your shoulder and haul them to the top and back down again and 
mm-hmm. set them down in, in a nice warm place and tell them that they did a great job when they wake up. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the metaphor is in yeah. that, you know, like how the analogy holds, I guess. But um, it does seem to me that that provocation is you can't, you actually have to do it like in a very narrow band. Like there's a narrow, there's like, you got to thread the needle there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do it in just the right way so that you mitigate the threat of everyone losing because of that mm-hmm. while keeping them from losing themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is like, how do we deal with fear? We name it. And then the other part of it is like, yeah, I'll just start with that one. Which is like, my mom has always taught me whenever you're like fearful or anxious, how do you name what is happening? Name it, explain it. And then it's like, you, you know, if you need to like fame it or shame it, you know, you can go from there. But once you actually name and explain what's going on, it's so much easier to navigate. Um, and I think people just don't quite know how we got here or we're like looking at the wrong things and blaming the wrong part of the system. And so back to like the root causes, I think really facing our root causes of othering and racism and colonialism and, you know, all of these things that, that will continue to fester into more problems if we don't deal with them. I think that's part of like the overwhelm right now. It's like, oh, there's toxicity and there's climate change and there's biodiversity loss. And then there's, you know, fascism and there's just, ah, you know, where do I start? Where, where, how are we ever going to get out of such a complex mess? Like if you look at, you just calm down and kind of look at the root causes and start to name and explain how we got here then we can like look at how to heal those root causes as we move along too. So how can we, as we're planting a beautiful, you know, polyculture food forest with the best of, you know, technology that we're better, like you know, these war orphans that we're talking about, how can we do that while also propagating whatever the opposite of scarcity is showing that we have abundance Whatever the opposite of, of racism and othering is, you know, bringing people together and appreciating that diversity increases resiliency, you know, taking money out of politics and, and, you know, turning it into a democratic, you know, lottery system. Like how do we look at kind of these root causes and shift, shift over and like kind of name and explain the larger whole? Cause I think, part of the freak out that everyone's happen, having is just that like people understand nuance a little bit more than we're giving them credit for. And so they're like, I don't know, recycling's not going to do anything because the whole system's effed, you know, or like, I'm not going to vote because the whole system's effed. Um, people understand that it's more complex. And so we need to kind of give them that education in, in what is the complex system that led us here. Um, and in the process, we can do all the healing that's required so that it doesn't just fester into the next hyper object thing like climate change that we can't put our arms around. I love that, that like, I sort of feel like there's a, there's like this sweet, um, almost like motherly invitation that you're making around the opportunity to offer people a deeper perspective than, you know, um, and I sort of feel like, like my usual go-to, uh, stance is more of a like you know like harsh father like archetype where i'm thinking more like just fucking grow up don't bitch to me about how you can't vote figure out what you're gonna do and go do it (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to hear it (laughs) 
and it's refreshing to have the sort of like you know the sort of like invitation of like okay so that feels like it's not a viable option i hear that so what what might be some options like why isn't an op why isn't it viable and mm -hmm. you know what are the root causes of its lack of viability and how are you going to engage with that and how is that engagement going to improve your life it's a really like mm -hmm. life affirming set of questions mm -hmm. yeah 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 i mean there's just there's so so much healing that will be done as we navigate this time and I think all of us being yeah, identifying as healers ourselves, every conversation can be healing for us and for the people that we're talking to and needs to be, you know, there's so much we need to untangle. So much unaddressed trauma, unaddressed self-awareness. Um, and so, yeah, using a permaculture term, just how can we stack functions, you know, with every, every effort here and do healing at every level, you know, this definition of regeneration as improving the health of every system that we touch. You know, like how can we improve the health of our own psyche and our own trauma and um, yeah, just the, the layers and layers of healing that can happen in every moment. I think that brings me a little bit of trepidation. <laughs> it's like a lot, <laughs> but at the same time, it, mm it's what needs to happen in order for us to navigate this like keyhole, you know, narrow and narrowing window of opportunity of, of getting to this, you know, beautiful regenerative economy on the other side. So, I mean, I guess I feel like the conversation could go in one of two places now, you know, one is I might sort of make a provocation around Okay, so that all sounds good. Maybe it's a little touchy feely. Uh, what are the like technological fixes that we have to do? <laughs> or like, what's the, you know, what's the rational materialist roadmap towards, you know, you know, it's sort of like more um, like, sort of like holding the like everything that we've both been saying as as true, but maybe coming at it and answering a set of questions that aren't necessarily near and dear to my heart, but as a like, playing devil's advocate, I can sort of hear, hear echoing around mm -hmm. like, okay, like that's all fine and good, but what about the sort of like, you know, engineering deterministic technological progress and how, <laughs> how are we going to weave that in? Um, so that's like a, that's like a question or a voice that, at some point I want to sort of like invite in and speak to. Um, and maybe we just, maybe, yeah, you, I mean, you can speak to that. And the other is, I, I also want to kind of like hear your, uh, hear a little bit about the role of Burning Man in, in your life and in the movement more broadly in your perspective and like what it does and does not serve and so those are two things that i feel you know are, are big conversations are like like whole sort of directions i'm not completely sure where to go i i would tend towards maybe the, the former like first answering this sort of like 
devil advocate. Like, let's just imagine that there's like, like, like I leave and then I come back and I'm sort of like a techno optimist, sort of uh, market libertarian. And I'm basically like, Amanda, that all sounds nice. And like rainbows and bunny rabbits are great, but like, give me like the, the, the market-driven technological reality of how in the next five years we're actually going to make, we're going to turn the ship mm-hmm. so that my rational brain can relax out of this emergency story that I've been telling myself about the end of the world and my, my doomsday preparations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I am with you. I had the same question uh, when I was teaching at Presidio Graduate School. I taught the kind of keystone course, which is called Principles of Sustainable Management, in which I had to teach, uh, you know, just how far up Shit Creek we are and also how to navigate back down it Um, and found myself just constantly looking like, how are we going to solve climate change? It is like the kind of, you know, uh, hyper issue right now. If we don't solve all of that, then everything else crumbles. Um, I had experienced that directly before moving to Presidio. I'd been working on this amazing poverty alleviation uh, project in Bolivia, really like building the foundation of, of the um, you know, economic households of all these families. And then the physical foundations of their homes were washed away in a, in a landslide. And I realized that climate change was this kind of multiplier effect that if we don't deal with it, everything all else that we're working on is going to wash away. So I dedicated myself to climate change solutions, uh, worked with 350.org and then Carbon War Room, and then uh, just was looking like, what's the plan? Does anyone have a plan? How are we going to get there? What's the technology? Uh, And so United Forces with Paul Hawken, and we built Drawdown, which is a different kind of assessment model than others uh, looking at climate change solutions in a couple ways. One, it looks beyond just energy, which most people had been looking at um, back then in 2016 or 2013. Um, and also it looked at what's possible. So most other assessment models were like, how do we stay below two degrees or how do we reduce emissions 80% by 2050? Ours was just looking at like, what is optimistically plausible? We have this technology, what's actually possible considering, you know, kind of the physical constraints of how do we build an EV market of, you know, how do we build, um, battery storage? How do we, Um, you know, expand agroforestry systems. And we found that it's actually possible, and the new drawdown numbers just came out, um, that it's actually possible to stay below 1.5 degrees with the technology that we have today, scaling it at a rate that is totally plausible. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. So 2053 uh, is when temperatures will go back down again. 2043 is when we'll reach drawdown which is the point at which the concentrations of greenhouse gases start to come back down again in our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So that's and the moment that there's actually a, we go from like a neutral to- Expanding 400, to negative 400 to, and 415 and then back down again to towards 350, negative. maybe even 280. Yeah, which is the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's the kind of- it's not all greenhouse gases, but it's kind of this equivalency that we speak to that tracks kind of where we are in this, in this blanket of, of pollution that's strangling our ecosystems right now, aka global warming. Um, and so, yeah, 
basically read the book, look at the new drawdown 2.0 numbers, which were just released on February 20th, and um, take a look at, at what's possible. It's you know a variety of technology fixes um, that are you know, becoming cheaper and cheaper. There's Swanson's Law, which is this uh, law. It's kind of like the Moore's Law of once you increase um, uh, 20% more you know, solar panels in the world, their cost uh, goes in half. And so, you know, solar panels are now 90% cheaper than they were when they were first put out. Look at like, you know, it's equivalent to like a DVD player when it first came out, it was like a $5,000 investment and now you can get them for under a hundred bucks. The same thing's happening for all this technology. There's market forces that are kind of just taking and running with it. Actually, there's a new report out about market forces and climate change solutions that <laughs> the authors don't even want to put it out because it's such good news because they don't want to like, you know, put out the fire of the climate activists. <laughs> so market forces are here to take this technology. There's so much money to be made. Drawdown found that it's a $74 trillion business opportunity. Um, yeah, it's happening. It's totally happening. And there's, yeah, just so much wealth uh, of all kinds to be made in the process. $74 trillion total, like between now and... 2015 in 2050 yeah mm -hmm. yeah and that includes of diversity is not just kind of your traditional technological fixes if you add up all the agroforestry solutions of drawdown it becomes the number one solution obviously we know all sorts of different kinds of capital um, that we can that, that's just financial capital that 74 trillion dollar number you're looking at agroforestry obviously there's all sorts of different kind of capital uh, returns on investment there um, biodiversity, livelihoods, communities, women's empowerment. What role do you think payment for ecosystem services or, you know, like Delton Chin style reward currency or uh, carbon credit schemes or cap and trade or sort of like general sort of like climate finance mechanisms is going to play in all of this? Like, mm -hmm. is that, is that pivotal? Is it like central and pivotal or is it something that will just support it? Or is there like, will we just get there kind of without innovative climate finance mechanisms? Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's completely pivotal. I mean, by some measures, it's already a third of the global economy has some sort of price on carbon. It's here. It's not really well navigated or not really well narrated mm -hmm. thanks to the oh, totally broken economic or political system of the U.S., um, in our lack of leadership, but it's, it's here and payment for ecosystem services and being able to see that ecosystem, you know, the, the verification of ecosystems changing, I think will be absolutely critical, um, to kind of be a, you know, a, like a pigeon language, you know, a, a language that navigates two different other languages in order to talk about ecosystem services and pollinator habitat and watershed health and, you know, all the things that, that we all know to be true wealth, well-being of the planet, uh, to kind of your more um, often myomic, myopic, you know, short-term scarcity model um, capital that we're more versed in now. Is there a scenario in which we hit 2050 and we're, you know, back to 350 or, or below? Um, that is a future that you don't want to live in, like where carbon has been sequestered, but the larger social 
economic and you know e e ecology biodiversity um, elements have been dropped out and we've just done a banalized techno fix is is that something we need to be wary of or can it simply not happen that way because of sort of the way the world works that we have to approach it holistically what's your sense mm -hmm. of that yeah, there's definitely a fear of like what Charles Eisenstein calls carbon reductionism. It's like just if we only look at the carbon, then, you know, all sorts of other things uh, could not be focused on. Um, I find carbon personally to be this kind of like welcome mat to systems understanding and, and kind of a more regenerative view, you know, but it's what happened to me. I got interested in carbon then I got interested as biochar in biochar because it was this great way of doing kind of a bio geoengineering. And then I was like, whoa, soil. <laughs> whoa complexity whoa the interdependence that fuels life you know it was kind of like this this entry point for a, a greater understanding of a a beautiful living planet um i think people will find it in a variety of ways i think you know the future will have kind of this like beautiful diversity like a plurality of ways of understanding the earth it's not like we're all going to live the same kind of like rainbow gathering you know lifestyle there's going to be all sorts of crazy different ways of living some people will live in like zeppelins that go around the world and they'll just be like steampunky and you know there's going to be all sorts of different ways of Can't living wait for the zeppelins i'm so stoked <laughs> on the zeppelins when i retire from region network i'm going straight into the sail the sail transport and zeppelin transport business that's my yes. <laughs> it's gonna happen or cloud cities you know we have the the ability to do this thing Buckminster Fuller saw, which is like create these islands in the sky, these bubbles in the sky to live in. There's going to be all sorts of really wild ways of living. It's not going to be, we can't even imagine how many different types of living there, there will be. And through going through net, through navigating this time of understanding the global carbon cycle and everything else that's connected to, which is everything, uh, we will understand kind of these like underlying principles that we can't exploit anymore. You know, we can't exploit one another. We can't exploit the earth. We can't, we can no longer, you know, control nature. We have to live as it, with it. Um, and then there's this idea of the circularity. Uh, so it's like the singularity, but uh, the circularity, it's this moment that everything, all of our materials will either be recovered, will like mine our landfills and just, you know, use all the recovered uh, trash plastic from the oceans and everything or regenerative. So every material that is being used for these zeppelins or for these crazy, you know, floating island nations, you know, all these different ways of, of seeing the future that are very kind of maybe Kim Stanley Robinson-esque, um, all those materials will be circular. Um, and we have that in the design science decade as happening in 2029. That's very soon. I know. It's all going to happen so much sooner than we think. <laughs> it has to. happen before or after the cloud city? Teetering off the cliff. I don't know if you've noticed the Thwaites Glacier and some other uh, large uh, catastrophic events that are around the corner. <laughs> it's a dramatic time. We need dramatic solutions and dramatic positive visions to match it. Yeah. I'm no so doubt. enthusiastic about how beautiful it can be and how much faster it can happen than we could possibly even imagine. So what was the glacier that you were mentioning, the Waits Glacier? Waits. It's a very large glacier in Antarctica that if it slips into the ocean will cause about a meter or so of sea level rise everywhere in the world. 
obviously complex models, but it's slipping and we need to cool down as fast as possible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a big deal. That would be a big, big deal. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, sort of methane in, in Siberia and mm -hmm. uh, boreal forests in North America. And yeah, there's a lot of potential sort of cascading feedback loops that we're right on the cusp of. That mm -hmm. it is, it does feel to me that it's now or never in, in some ways, but then in other ways, you know, <clears throat> I wonder, and, and I've heard, uh, like Charles Eisenstein says things similar to this. Um, I've, I've long wondered about this sort of like a manatize the eschaton kind of end of days uh, paradigm of thinking way of seeing that seems like it's been around for about as long as we've been sprinting towards the perceived edge. You know, it's like as long as we've been sprinting towards the edge, we've thought that we were right on the edge, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. how much, how much of our perception of doom is a figment of our imagination that actually is driving us to have destructive behaviors um, versus motivating us to prepare. You know, like it feels, there's something always feels a little Judeo-Christian about the climate collapse narrative that feels yeah. very similar to like, like the end of days are coming and, and when you, you know, go to heaven or hell, it's this or that. And either, you know, it's, it's all right now and you've got to just fucking repent, <laughs> mm -hmm. which feels very similar to how I, I sense the discourse gets sucked, you know, like even with region network and how we message things and sort of like, Hey, there's this, like there's this market opportunity and there's this urgent potential and that's what's driving things and we're going to meet the need. You know, it's like, it's the same thing. And so I'm just wondering, what are you, what's your sense of that? You know, like what's your sense of Charles's critique of the climate um, emergency being our dominant narrative and the, and the ways in which that may be problematic and how that links to previous paradigms which weren't climate and weren't science but have a have an echo like mm -hmm. there's an echo taking place mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean climate change is one festering wound of a whole unbalanced system um and we can't just look at it and we can't just do climate alarmist messaging um at the same time the earth is warming and we have never ever experienced this many ecosystems about to collapse and they are all connected. And if the Amazon doesn't have enough water, it's going to turn into a desert and then we won't have our water cycle, our global water cycle. There's like, I don't know how many times more water in the rivers above the, in the atmosphere above the, above the Amazon than in it. With the methane, similar story, we've never been this hard up against this many ecosystems collapsing. You can't, sure, nuclear war, super scary, 
could happen in 15, 15 minutes, we're all gone. Yes, that is a different type of alarm. This is completely different. And it's fucking alarming. Mm-hmm. It's my French. And it's not just climate. Climate is a festering wound of a larger kind of unhealthy, unbalanced system and all sorts of root causes that we've already gone into. And maybe all of that alarmist training in the past has been training us for this moment, you know? And, and like regeneration is partially a Christian word of coming back and being born again as, as God, as one with the three spirits of being born again with Jesus as our savior. What if regeneration now is being born again with Jesus as life? As like, oh, we are one with nature. You know, exactly. like what if we can use these same paths, these same rituals, these same traditions, these same things that are in our hearts as a way to yeah to listen to the alarm and and find a new way the window of opportunity is narrowing by the day it is becoming less and less probable Mm. that we can make it but it's still possible and the more that we know it's possible the more possible it becomes what's is there a point of no return is there a moment that we go past and we're so we won't know it for many decades so yeah we won't know so we have already happened we have to behave as if it was yesterday and we just made it and now we have to keep going because it's today again like that it's every day like every day is like we have to just sort of be on point essentially and just behave that way yeah. How many people but be many driven by the beauty of it, not by yeah. the fear of losing it. Like yeah. one of my huge insights recently is I lost my dad when I was 14. And for so long, it was like, I want to protect everyone in the world from that kind of heartache. Mm. And just recently I was like, no, I want everyone to live the love that I had with him, mm. you know? And that flip is like what we need to be really aware of in our, in our messaging of just like, we can try to protect one another from the loss, but we can also like be thriving and striving towards the, the beauty and the security and the safety and the, the fun. Like it's going to be so fun if we make it. It is so fun. (laughs) We're going to have such an amazing celebration for the circularity. We're going to have such an amazing celebration when the salmon come back. Yeah. Yeah. Be the best parties in the history of humanity. So speaking of great parties. <laughs> Burning Man. Tell me about Burning Man. And uh, what's, you know, I, would you self-identify as a burner? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So uh, in 2020, moving into the 20s, I love saying we're going to the 20s, the roaring 20s. Roaring, soaring 20s. Mm-hmm. Here we go. The regenerating, the, the regenerating twenties. Um, what's the role 20s. of Burning Man? The sporing twenties. Nice. But the mushroom <laughs> farm is calling us. <laughs> uh, the role of Burning Man. There's a couple different elements there. Um, one, it's a prototype community. Um, you can go there and experience generosity. Uh, experience a different kind of economy a different type way of relating with one another that you can't unsee you can't unfeel you know it it inoculates people you know spores that kind of way of living into people 
Um, there's also so much waste and it's really disgusting, you know, and my husband and I have done a lot of work around that. We started a petition, um, to the board and, and got them kind of, you know, were one of the many kicks in the pants to get them to do an environmental, um, kind of proclamation. And now they have this beautiful 2030 plan. Obviously we weren't the only triggers in that, but we were part of kind of this, like, this needs to happen movement. Um, Part of that 2030 plan is working with the 146 communities of burners around the world for them to be ecosystem restoration camp like communities, you know, and maybe even partnering with ERC. We were just on the phone call yesterday uh, with Burning Man and ERC and BFI and um, ecosystem restoration camps is John Liu's work for those who don't know. Um, so there's this ability for burners who have this, you know, access to um, you know, financial wealth in a lot of ways, but then also access to incredible creative wealth and our community leaders and kind of just courageous in their ability to, to build into imagination um, that I'm really excited to see what burners do around the world and their local ecosystems to you know, Burning Man meets ecosystem restoration camps is a very exciting idea. It's happening. I, just a phone call I was on yesterday with John Liu and Chris Breedlove from Burning Man. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing a big event here uh, April 18th here in the Bay Area that's going to prototype it. ERC could use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a, a syner synergy inducing. In both ways. Project. Burning Man can use it. That's yeah. Yeah, so lots more on Burning Man, but, you know, I think people identifying as artists, a lot of people who go are, like, not traditionally kind of trained as artists or identifying as artists, and they become an artist through going, and I think, you know, artists are, like, the ultimate systems thinkers putting together uh, different um, elements of, you know, different holes and also seeing the larger context and trying to communicate that, so... There's so many different beautiful things it is. And it's also so wasteful. And I get so, so annoyed by how many people buy new shit for it. Uh, we're starting a new campaign that's <laughs> new. Ew. Why would you buy something new? That's so ew. Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. So I could go on and on. But I'm, I'm part how of Food Without Borders. It's an amazing camp. We work all over the world to kind of bring a lot of this uh, civic activation to life through you know, creativity and the intersection of uh, technology and ecology. How has Burning Man changed um, since you've been going? The, um, it used to be way more counter-cultural, uh, but I think it's done a good job of getting out in the world to the point where it doesn't really seem as uh, bohemian or like uh, alternative anymore, but I think it's because we're winning. You know, we're kind of bringing that culture back into the world. Um, it's changed just in the last couple of years. I'm seeing more and more people kind of pop up and say, like, what's our responsibility as burners and realizing the privilege of being able to go and um, just seeing what we can do the other 51 weeks of the year with what we do. There's a lot of camps kind of giving their infrastructure to humanitarian disaster relief programs. Um, and building art to be extended beyond just being used um, at Burning Man. Then people from Burning Man, from the organization, are being asked to come to cities all over the world and help them rethink what, what the 
future of cities are, you know, and like, that's not what they planned to do when they started over 30 years ago. <laughs> like, right. But now that's what they are. They're, they're, they're kind of culture builders for the future of cities for the entire earth. And um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a beautiful force and it's not without its difficulties. And then, yeah, super frustrated with how wasted it is and like how, how we, we aren't using our potential as, as creative people out there. We're still using so much, so much waste. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Will you be a burner for life? Yeah, I'd say so. Cool. Yeah, this is this will be my twelfth year. Mm-hmm. So what that that what was your first year? Two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Evolution was the year where I told everyone that Darwin didn't actually say it was the survival of the fittest. He said it's the survival of the fitness within your ecosystem that actually determines your survival. So what we were talking to earlier, it's about making the larger environment thrive in addition to making yourself thrive that actually determines your evolution and your survival. Yeah, definitely. Make yourself, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the, um, irreplaceable. Make yourself irreplaceable and you won't be replaced. <laughs> in your in, in your ecosystem, in your community, and for the earth. If if humans become irreplaceable because we're doing such a good job of of uh stewarding a thriving, regenerating ecosystem, then we'll be good. Good to go. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I first uh I the only year I went to Burning Man was two thousand seven. And it was uh it was quite an experience. It was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Lots of fun. I, I, I got, I was privileged enough to stay. I was camping with Starhawk and Andrew and Leora from Gaia University. <laughs> it was so fun. Yeah, it was a blast. And Jay Ma from uh, Living Mandala and other places. Yeah, so we had our little Permi camp and had a Permi exhibit. And it was the year that the eclipse happened. It was, the, it was a green man was the theme. And it was the year the eclipse happened. And somebody climbed up and burned the man down like almost a week early, like on like day two or something like that. <laughs> right. It was pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, I've not gone back. I've, I definitely sometimes have the desire to, but it's, uh, it's never been a, it's never, it's like there's been too much else to, in, to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's such yeah. a, too much else to do. And also that for, for many years that conflicted with um, a pre-existing commitment that I have every year at that same time. Yeah. Uh, I think this, I think these days that's not a, a conflict anymore, but for, yeah, for like six years or so, that was just, it wasn't even viable that last week in August, first week in September. Yeah, it's a difficult time for the beginning of the semesters. Um, one amazing uh, regenerative opportunity within the Burning Man community is that the Fly Ranch, which is the local um, 
property that Burning Man acquired that a bunch of my friends have been involved with mm-hmm. for years now uh, has started a new competition for regenerative design. So uh, they're looking for people to come up. Um, they did it with a land art generator initiative. Um, so it's a prize for coming up with new ideas around waste and water and compost and regeneration, art and design um, for how to really build an amazing kind of prototype community right next to uh, Burning Man that can then kind of go and regenerate the whole uh, larger ecosystem there. There's a lot to be done. Um, reforestation and bringing back fish stocks um, working with the local um, Pyramid Lake um, Native Americans for their, and uh, yeah, great opportunity right now. I think the first deadline is in May uh, for yeah. the, for that in- initiative. Yeah, I've been excited to see Fly Ranch sort of coming into being for quite some time. It's been a slow, methodical, beautiful, just sort of process to get that land and you sort of get grounded. I know some of the folks involved too. It's it's exciting. I'm excited how that's going to kind of percolate out into the broader community to have a have a place that isn't that transcends leave no trace and is like leave a positive trace. That was always my my vision for return triumphal return to burning man has always been that i'll uh show up with a herd of camels and we'll shit all over the playa and then leave as as a um as a just my sort of art my art exhibit in uh you know leaving a trace of uh, camel camel poop in the desert yeah Uh, i pour some people some tea and and whatnot like do a whole but Right. But that does speak to kind of like this, you know, this piece of regeneration of like, it's not about doing less bad. You yeah, know, exactly. So much of what the environmental movement has been trying to communicate is like, just do less bad, just do less bad. Like, you're an awful thing, just do less of your awful thing. And for the beginning of our conversation where we started with being a beneficial species, it's like, oh, no, wait, actually do more of the good stuff. Um, and that we're like far more capable than we know of doing that. And we have the technology and we have the will and we're starting to come together. Um, and yes. yeah. Make sure the waste you leave is beautiful and regenerative. Uh-huh. Make sure, you know, it's like a cows. What would the world be without cows? You know, who turn, who magically turn <laughs> grass into carbon rich soil. And what would the world be right. without? When they're grazed properly, no more capos, no more industrial. Ag. That's right. When they're when they're when they're cows, the <laughs> animals and capos aren't actually cows. They're some perversion of cows. Right, right. So, and then cow walks onto a beach. One of my favorite drawdown solutions. If we feed them, this red leafy algae, we can actually limit their methane on top of it. Yeah, there's a few super cool startups working on that. I, I always. I always wonder if that isn't going to perpetuate CAFOs, but... No, no, no. It's um, harder than that. I think we can eliminate CAFOs while also encouraging regenerative agriculture. I don't know why people are so overly simplistic in their messaging. Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I wonder... I guess I, I wonder if some amount of CAFO-ness isn't, like... so. Grain finishing an animal, is it 
you know, it's inconclusive. I mean, at least according to some people, it's inconclusive how horrible that is in certain circumstances, especially if you have some red, red algae, red seaweed in the mix. Um, I mean, I'm sort of setting aside the sort of humanitarian an animal That's right. That's not regenerative. We want to increase the health of every system we touch. There's well, no what I'm, I, I, I think you, I, it may or may not be. I actually think there could be a case made for um, feedlots in a regenerative animal system if it's done in a particular way. It's like it's all about how it's done, right? Yeah. I think just call, we can't call it the same thing. If you're gonna if you're gonna change it to the point where it is increasing the health of every system, then you have to call it something else. But what if what if it just did it? <laughs> <sighs> yeah. What if the economic imperative is so strong that it just happens? Do we have to change the name? This is like getting back to our original question about, you know, what we first started with around language and you know to what degree do you subvert something and, and it just becomes a regenerative solution. People don't even know that that's what happened and in a generation, it's just sort of how things happen. Yeah. Um, versus sort of it being sort of a vaunted, celebrated transformation or revolution in the way that things are happening. Yeah, yeah. Bucky said, don't fight forces, use them. So. Yeah, there might be some cases where we need to keep the name of something or, you know, kind of covertly go about that. Um, yeah, I just, you just need to make sure it's not just like incremental change because that's not going to get us there. Well, I've been having that conversation a lot with people. So what is the, are we worried that we'll get stuck in incremental change? I mean, this is the, can you have large transformative shift without starting with incremental change? Like, can you achieve a watershed moment or a snowball effect without that first, like, little, what looks to be small steps? Mm -hmm. I guess it's just stopping with incremental change. If an incremental change is within a larger, you know, complex transformation, you know, then I don't see it as incremental change. But there are, yeah, it's going to be step by step. I guess when I say, like, it won't happen with incremental change, I just don't want us to say, oh, look, we did this thing, pat ourselves on the back and feel like we're done. Stop. No, yeah. totally. But I guess the, the shadow side of that that I, I notice I do, and I, I also notice more broadly in sort of the regenerative movement, is that we will belittle and or push away small steps towards progress as not being the whole the whole thing and sometimes i wonder if we're not actually short-circuiting a process where it looks like it's a small but it's you know it's like it looks like it's the small little bit and we're worried we're scared that it's just just half measures and half steps but really it's creating the the conditions for that full transformation and systemic shift to take place. And yeah, yeah, just, we were just having that conversation in the region network telegram where people were like, 
people were sharing the good, like Jeff Bezos' $10 billion commitment and all these other things, Microsoft's carbon neutral and paying off their carbon debt and all of these other things is like, yeah, this is happening. We're going to do this. Look at the market potential. How exciting is this? And then other people were like, fuck that. They're just a bunch of corporates who are just like, it's just incrementalism and it's just, it's just maintaining the status quo. And I sort of was wondering if that isn't part of the, challenge that we have to address right now is like tuning down our it's not good enough filter a little bit mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah hunter lovins used to teach at presidio graduate school and she often said hypocrisy is the first step so yeah. it's like <laughs> hypocrisy it. happens and then you get called out <laughs> and then you move to the next step you know and so as long as we're calling out you know as long as we're doing as long as we're balancing it and, and seeing the larger context and being in, in like that dynamic tension around it um, and not just celebrating without looking at like the nuance and the complexity. Um, but still yeah, celebrating, I, it's really important that we celebrate. We can't just be like trudging through this whole thing. Celebrate and I love the, I, I love the re-embrace of hypocrisy in a way because what hypocrisy comes from is actually having a moral compass and a set of and a mission and a, and a set of goals that are aspirational and aren't just easy to meet. And if you don't have, if you're a nihilist and you have no goals and you don't care what happens, you can never be a hypocrite. And so the, the attachment to, you know, there's something there, there's something really rich there, I think, to contemplate around you know, like how do we hold hypocrisy as something that's inevitable and 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 something to sort of celebrate overcoming not not celebrating being a hypocrite but celebrating finding out you're one and then evolving that that somehow is like something really beautiful to to vaunt and sort of hold up high and celebrate as a community mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we're getting up towards the, the hour here, and I know you probably have a busy day ahead of you saving the world and Lots making life jump up and live. And yeah, um, it's been such a pleasure to have you here. Do you want to share um, any resources where people could just sort of check out uh, BFI's work, your work, um, opportunities for engagement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so Buckminster Fuller Institute, definitely check out BFI.org. Uh, Faith Flanagan and I are, are the stewards of BFI right now. She's a really wonderful powerhouse operations ninja visionary alongside um, me co-piloting this organization. And we have launched uh, Trim Tabs Basecamp, which is a systems thinking boot camp, an online course to learn about systems. Right now we're learning about Gaian systems with David McConville, who was recently on this, uh, rapid prototyping from Tom Chi, uh, sense making with Daniel Schmachtenberger, and then permaculture with Pandora Thomas. Um, and then we also have the Design Science Decade that we're putting out, really excited to hear how people want to weave into that movement. Uh, and then Regenerosity, which is about moving uh, capital over to regenerative projects all over the world. So that's the BFI side of things. And then on my side, AmandaJoyRavenhill.com. Uh, excited to be out uh, in the world and yeah, kind of have this 
this motherly energy uh, that you tuned into, Greg, around this movement. Just like I have been just offered a unique and very privileged uh, path on this earth, and I acknowledge that, and I really want to kind of offer healing uh, in a way that brings people alongside and, and um, yeah, gives us the opportunity to just have a maximum fun future. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you do speaking engagements and yes, uh, workshops and, and things like that all over the place. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll finish with a Buckminster Fuller quote as one yes. does. So he said, <clears throat> It is now highly feasible to take care of everybody on earth at a higher standard of living than any have ever known. It no longer is you or me. Selfishness is unnecessary. War is obsolete. It is a matter of converting our high technology from weaponry to livingry. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg.